Welcome to Reaching World Podcast, where we highlight the world's largest network of influencers for good, love, and service. Join us in saying thank you to these incredible individuals and organizations by listening, subscribing, and sharing their legacies. And by doing this together, we will help inspire others to leave their legacy of service and love. I'm your host, Zach Garner. We're super honored and thrilled to have Stefan on our podcast today. Stefan is the CEO of Tower Paddleboards, founder of that. And Stefan, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to our podcast listeners? Uh, my name is Stefan Arstall. I'm the, uh, the founder and CEO of Tower Paddleboards. You know, we've actually expanded out uh, Tower Paddleboards into a number of different companies now. We uh, our, our newest one is Tower Electric Bikes. Uh, we also have NoMiddleman.com. So we're we're expanding. Tell us a little bit about the startup experience of you know, having the idea of the tower paddle boards and then taking it on Shark Tank, getting you know, ABC is one of its largest deals. It's one of the top 10 success stories in the history of the show. Uh, and so it's just a lot of great landmarks and milestones that you've accomplished with this business and idea. But let's go back to the beginning of where the idea came from, you know, the aha moment. Sure, sure. Yeah. So I've been in the, um, in the business world, in the online space, really since 1999. So really, when it was a starting, that's when I got out of grad school, you know, business school. And I worked for a startup company in the radiology field for about five years. Um, it was sort of an Internet portal for radiology. And that's where I sort of, you know, cut my chops in Internet marketing. Uh, and then in 2003, I, as a side company, I started a poker chip company called BuyPokerChips.com. And that was just sort of high end poker chips uh, to consumers for their home poker games. Uh, very niche product, but, you know, worldwide. And that business, uh, you know, wrapped up really, really quickly and um, then sort of sort of peaked and sort of, uh, you know, declined as sort of uh, most products do this in the online world. Um, they, they very quickly get commoditized and whatever you're doing, somebody else can copy. So that tends to happen online. So about 2010, uh, a buddy took me out uh, paddleboarding and I was at the time looking for another business because my uh, poker chip business was declining. It was declining so much that I was even job hunting at the time. Uh, but, you know, nobody would hire me because I was an entrepreneur and they're like, why do you need a job? You've got these businesses. And I'm like, well, they're not making money right now. So I need a job. So a buddy took me out paddleboarding and I just uh, sort of fell in love with the sport. It was, uh, you know, very easy to do. I was paddleboarding in surf and I've always tried to surf and, you know, I have surfed, but I wouldn't call myself a good surfer. But paddleboarding was a lot easier. Um, you know, you get the paddle for better propulsion. So I bought a paddleboard and I lived on the, the bay here in San Diego and then uh, took my son out. It was a five year old at the time and he could sit up front. And I could get like a workout. And then within a week, like he was paddleboarding himself. So, you know, from the surf to the water to kids to, you know, old 65 year old guys out in the surf, you know, on their fifth day, like catching waves. I was thinking, wow, this sport is much bigger than people realize. And in 2010, the, the, the paddleboard market was, was booming. I mean, it was growing about 100 percent a year. So it was a growing, growing market. Um, so we, we launched into that. And then Shark Tank was just sort of a freak thing. Uh, you know, one day I had just hired my first employee maybe three weeks prior and I got a call from a, a producer saying, hey, you know, we've got this TV show. Uh, you know, would you like to come on? You can raise money. And I get those calls a lot, uh, strangely, um, from basically quote TV shows. And they, you, you probably got these calls too. And you get about an hour into it, this call, and you're really excited because you're going to be on TV for the first time in your life. And then they say, oh, and there's a $19,000 production fee for this. And you're like, oh, my God, this wasted my time. So I've had you know a dozen of those calls prior to Shark Tank calling. So I thought this was another one of those calls. So I was sort of almost short with the guy. And I was like, 
look, I don't mean to be you know an ass here, but is this like, is there a paid production fee or any of this? And he's like, no, no, no. And I'm like, well, I've never heard of this show. And he's like, well, it's on, it's on ABC on Friday nights. And I'm like, you're kidding me. I've never, how have I never heard of this show where entrepreneurs go raise money? This was season two of Shark Tank. And it was, I mean, there wasn't much of a following at all season one. And this was just the start of season two. So not too many people had heard of it. Anyway, so, uh, you know, five weeks later, then I was pitching to the Sharks. I'm like, sure, I'll be on your show. And even two days before we pitched, I didn't know Mark Cuban was was one of the sharks because he was a guest shark at the time. And I honestly didn't know who any of these other sharks were at the time when I was because I hadn't followed the show. I was just trying to memorize my pitch. I was worried about remembering everybody's name on the panel. And then they told me that Mark Cuban was going to be a, uh, a guest shark. And I'm like, well, I know who that guy is. And <laughs> so that was my target at that point. Uh, but then I went on the show uh, and I'm actually known as the worst uh, pitch in the history of Shark Tank that still landed a deal. So it was it was pretty disastrous on camera. I forgot my line, sort of froze. I got called a nerd, a leprechaun. I, they just sort of tore into me and uh, I had to and they didn't sort of buy that. I So I had to make basically a, a comeback and nobody was really interested in the paddleboard business because they thought I didn't have any intellectual property. Um, I was basically selling. I was creating a direct to consumer uh, stand up paddleboard company and I was going to sell paddleboards at half price. And this was really early in the direct consumer. Like, people didn't really understand what that meant at that time. You know, Warby Parker was started in, in 2010 and some of the really sort of the first direct consumer brands uh, were coming online at that time. And, you know, we were I pitched in, I think, 2011. So they didn't really understand how selling half price paddleboards online would take over that market, especially without any intellectual you know, property. And so they didn't think even if I got some traction that I could um, sustain it and protect it. So in the middle of the Shark Tank pitch, I had to kind of pivot and I, I pivot, pivoted to, well, you know, I've done this for several different businesses. You know, I helped help one of my brother's businesses. It's Westberg.com. It's like uh, tree trimming equipment and supplies. And he's grown that business from, you know, I don't know, quarter of a million dollars to maybe seven to ten million dollars a year through basically just online marketing. And so I've, and I've done this. I helped with, with the radiology company. I've done it with several companies, the poker chip company. And I told them, look, you guys have all these companies. Maybe I can come in and help with your companies or we can go out and buy a business for ten million dollars, inject what I know and then flip it and sell it for thirty million dollars. So I started pitching them the idea of a business flipping service. <laughs> because I was just sort of, okay, they don't like the paddle boards. I'll sell them something else. So I pivoted and not all of this got caught on camera um, because, you know, you're in there for an hour, hour and a half and you got to condense it down into something that makes sense. So it really on, on the, you know, the show, it's okay. This idiot come on. Uh, he makes an idiot out of himself. Uh, <laughs> he doesn't know what he's talking about. They start doing a question and answer period. The sharks are out right away. And then all of a sudden there's a bidding war between uh, Cuban and Mr. Wonderful. And, uh, you know, then I walked away with, with 150,000 for 30% from Mark Cuban. So that was the Shark Tank. Uh, wow. <laughs> since then, we've uh, at the time uh, we were pitching on Shark Tank, we had $100,000 in lifetime sales for the paddleboard business. Since then, we've done a little over 33 million. So that has uh, it wasn't a huge investment by uh, Mark. And so it's been one of his, I think, his best, best investment in the history of the show. And where I think we're top 10, top five. Uh, in the history of Shark Tank. Wow, that's incredible. Thanks for sharing that. Um, so Stefan, talk to us about the growth of that business. Obviously, it helps to have almost that celebrity endorsement on your website and you know behind the brand, but obviously you've overcome obstacles to get to where you are today. Talk to us about one of the largest obstacles you've had to overcome building your business and what kept you motivated to get over that obstacle. Well, definitely the biggest obstacle to growing our business was capital. Even though we raised, uh, you know, 150,000 uh, from Mark Cuban, 
at the time he invested, I had a hundred thousand thousand dollars in loans, one from my brother and one from another friend. And so I basically paid those loans off. And then we had a really good month. The, uh, the month, uh, the episode aired on Shark Tank and Mark's like, well, Hey, you had a great month. Why don't you write me a $50,000, um, just basically a check, uh, dividend check. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa you just put in money. And he's like, well, no, maybe we'll get an update. You're doing so great. You know, you can, uh, you can say you're writing me $50,000 checks. So I basically didn't have any money to grow this company. And the company that, that, you know, we're growing, it's not like an info based company. This is real products that you gotta, you know, put 50,000 down and, uh, you know, then they produce paddle boards overseas and then you can get them three months later. Very capital intensive business and our growth rate, you know, the first year that Mark was in on the company, we did a quarter of a million in sales. Uh, the next year we did 1.3 million, then 3.1 million. And 5.1 million, and 7.5 million. So that growth rate was just, uh, you know, it was tough to to manage uh, with with really no capital. So we were just sort of balancing a bunch of plates and trying to keep everything. And we were, you know, we could have grown much faster, honestly, if we had more money behind us. But this is one interesting thing I've learned from Cuban was that it's okay to basically forego upside. He's like, what you really want to do is you want to protect your downside risk. Don't get it overextended. And he's like, you know, who cares? We could have had 15 million in sales this year. We'd rather do five or 10 million in sales and not risk going out of business. And that, that was a really strange concept to me when I started out because I was like, I got nothing now. I've got nothing to lose. But he's very uh, risk averse and it's a totally different, different mindset. And that has actually served us well as the, uh, you know, the paddleboard business sort of peaked and is coming back down now. And uh, so that conservative mindset has, has sort of helped us. And, you know, we've diversified, we've diversified, uh, you know, electric bikes. And today, you know, tower electric bikes is, is again, going to get us on this growth trajectory. And that's a, that's a market that is just booming. I mean, you're going in the U S from today, maybe 300,000 e-bikes are sold. And in about 10 years, it's going to be 7 million. So you're talking a 20 times growth in about a, you know, a decade uh, period of e-bikes and uh you know we're going to basically do the same thing half price e-bikes online so we can we can provide the best value to consumers uh we we think we have a you know a, definitely a winner in that but if we would have just been you know sort of happy with the paddle boards we would have never diversified into other product lines and um you know we might right now love the advice that mark gave you and i think sometimes we have a hard time doing that as entrepreneurs we want to think bigger think bigger think bigger but that risk diverse mindset is, is pretty powerful, especially as a startup. So it sounds like you get a you get to talk to Mark directly. Obviously, there's that legal period you go through after the Sharks make an investment that you know, but you know, talk to us about the relationship now with Mark Cuban. Is it you guys talk often or is it quarterly, once a year? What's, what's it like now being partnered with Mark Cuban? Yeah, I think we might get, a, well, initially, um, I, I didn't figure we would get any contact with Mark. You know, I figured we signed the deal. I was negotiating the the sort of the investment with his point people and his lawyer. And then once they signed it, one of the negotiation points I had was, hey, I want to put Mark's face and his name on our website. I want this to be, you know, Mark Cuban's paddleboard company, because really nobody at the time knew who Tower Paddleboards were. But, you know, Mark had pretty good brand recognition of his name. So and we're doing the same thing with the e-bike company where you have like, a, you know, Elon Musk owns Tesla. It's sort of Elon Musk's electric car company that especially before people knew what Tesla was. That was a very powerful combination. We're doing the same thing in e-bikes. This is you know, billionaire Mark Cuban's e-bike company. 
And that is a very valuable asset. So that's kind of what I negotiated up front. And I really never expected to have a you know relationship or communication with him. But as soon as we signed the deal, um, the lawyers are like, OK, uh, you know, going forward, uh, you know, you're going to report once a week um, and Mark needs to be CC'd on uh, you know anything you send to us. And I was like, well, cool. At least he's going to get visibility on these sort of weekly reports and anything. Anytime I'm communicating with any of, any of the uh, you know Mark Cuban companies, guys, he'll he'll be CC'd on that. But in reality, um, you know, I think in the, the first or the second email that I sent to him, he wrote me at 11 o'clock at night and was like swearing on how much of an idiot I'm being on this and this. And <laughs> so it's really ceasing the rest of his team. And it's direct communication from him, which sort of surprised me. I didn't understand how he would have this much time. He's got 100 companies to deal with. Like, why does he care about this little paddleboarding company? But I think he, you know, really has a passion for businesses and he's really interested in it. And I think he kind of lives vicariously through all of these companies uh, that he has. You know, and so he's more than willing to give me, you know, advice and uh, not always what I want to hear. Um, so the communication now is, um, you know, I push the once a week um, reporting to about once a month because uh, once a week it's, just, it's too onerous for me. And then, then you know, anytime I have a question for him, I can throw stuff over the wall. He'll just email me randomly if he's got an, a business idea or you know, a new product idea. He sent products to us um, and just said, hey, you know, check out this. These things seem to be pretty popular. Um, like with the e-bike company, um, you know, they're filming, um, I don't know what season it is now, 11 or 12 of Shark Tank next week. So we're actually going to go up there to the, the Sony studios and we've got, you know, our new e-bike uh, model, the beach bum. And he's got one of his house, but we're going to go up there and I'm going to bring my film guy and we're just going to film him on the lot of, uh, you know, the Sony studios uh, with that, with the e-bike just so we can get the, you know, the good pictures and good uh, video. So he's, he's been very tough. I think a lot of that is because, you know, we've been one of his best investments. I think it, it took a while for him to trust us and probably trust anybody. I just think, you know, from the world that he comes from, that's it's difficult because a lot of people just sort of treat him as an ATM. We've, we've treated him good. I paid him, you know, over a million dollars in dividends. Uh, um, and, you know, we've still got a healthy concern here and we've spun it into some other businesses. So he's he's pretty happy and he, he's treated us pretty well. That's phenomenal. Thank you. I love that. You started and launched and you've failed and succeeded. Obviously, you're to the point where you love what you're doing. And I think that's true success as entrepreneurs. Like when it doesn't feel like work anymore, it's just your passion and it's growing. I feel like you've reached that level of success that a lot of us are aspiring to. So what advice would you tell a struggling entrepreneur that wants to give up on their passion or dream today that you've had to overcome that could help motivate them through their obstacles or challenges? The biggest thing that I've learned is that you want to go after after businesses, not that is a product in your head that you want to go out and see if anybody wants to buy this or try to market it. You want to find, you want to identify express demand in the market and then meet it. That's it. And every time I've done that, I've had a successful business. Like with the poker chips, like when I started that business, the poker chip business was booming and I was trying to buy poker chips myself and there was just none available, right? It was just very hard to wait like four months to get something. So I started buying it from these people and shipping them overnight to people. And so I, I just basically identified a little bit of unmet demand and fulfilled that. Super successful. With that poker chip company, we, uh, me and a buddy from college, uh, we both had kids at the time. And our kid, kids were playing with the poker and said, hey, we should make a kid product. And so we designed this kid's product called Discmo Kids Toys. And they were basically little sets of poker chips, maybe seven or ten poker chips that were, you know, color coordinated and around a theme like uh, construct construction vehicles or, you know, fairy tale characters or I don't know, animals or something like that. And so it was this whole set of 
basically an educational toy of these chips and kids could throw them, they could sort them, they could stack them, they could do a number of things with this. And, you know, we thought this is the greatest company ever. And we took it to the, you know, the biggest trade show in the world for like the Melissa and Doug type toys. I mean, it was in Las Vegas and, you know, we exhibited there and we won the top 10 toy of the show. And we, we sold exactly two wholesale accounts. <laughs> and then those wholesale accounts never ordered again. Um, it, was a, it was a product. It was a product that was, you know, look at this, like, man, this thing's brilliant. But you had to explain it to people and you had to sell people on it. And it never went anywhere. And I ended up just selling him the half the company. He just took over my debt on it, basically. So, you know, a big loss. And I've, I've done this with other companies. You know, identify demand and paddle boards. I was like, holy cow, like paddle boards are way too expensive. Why don't we sell them direct to consumer and we should be able to kill it, right? Why does a paddle board cost $1,300? That's just stupid. A surfboard costs $300. It's just a big surfboard. Identify demand, that business took off. Um, the same thing with e-bikes. I mean, like e-bikes are, you know, in a retail store, they sell for $4,000 or $6,000 or you can get a really crappy one for $2,500. And I'm like, wow, we can sell like a really nice, you know, electric bike, like top of the line, $1,500. And so, and it's a growing market. So express demand, meet that demand. Don't, you know, you, you in your question there, you kind of worded it as don't let them give up their dream. But sometimes dreams are just dreams. I mean, that is not a business. That is not a business opportunity. The idea that you have this cool product that you thought of and then you're going to try and buy it. Horrible, horrible business idea. You should take all of your business ideas and you should put them into two buckets. One bucket should be, OK, is there already known demand for this or not? And then the ones that are in the, the bucket over here that uh, the demand is sort of questionable on this, just throw those away and spend all of your time on the other ones. And then you should also take all businesses, put them into two other buckets. And the bucket should be, does this bucket, uh, does this idea require any external funding or is it just money I can put into myself? And then in the other bucket, it would be, okay, I need to raise a million dollars to do this one. And you should take all the ones that require money and you should throw them away because I've spent a ton of my life, you know, chasing these, you know, larger projects that require money and never being able to raise money aside from, you know, the Shark Tank sort of freak, uh, somebody calling me saying, would you like to, you know, raise money on a TV show? So that's the, that is my two pieces of advice to entrepreneurs. Don't chase down businesses that require funding. Figure out a way to do a business that you can sort of self-fund, even if it's just consulting. And get started there. And then you can sort of self-fund because the idea of raising money is largely a myth. It's always going to be friends and family. And if you look at what goes on in Silicon Valley, it's just uh, that's just sort of bastardized version of friends and family money. Because the number one indicator of being able to raise money in Silicon Valley is have you raised it before? It has nothing to do with how good you are. It has nothing to do with your business idea. It's do you already have friends and family established in Silicon Valley? And so those are two two critical pieces identify demand need it don't create a product and then try to figure out will this thing sell and then uh, you know don't chase down businesses that require uh, capital Stefan, obviously running a multi-million dollar business branching out into other markets you know time is money literally and so what is your daily routine or weekly routine that you would contribute to your success that you would suggest other entrepreneurs do as well um there's a number. We sort of have a unique weekly routine. Uh, in 2015, the year we did about, I think, $5 million in revenue. We had a team of seven or eight at the time. Uh, we decided we were going to move the entire company to a five-hour workday. So 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. straight through, no lunch. And we were basically going to condense our day 
And I told everybody, I'm going to give you your life back. So you're going to have from one, you know, nine or 10 or whenever you go to bed every day. And then you're going to have your weekends free. Um, so I'm going to try and give you the lifestyle that an entrepreneur has. Um, but in those five hours, you're going to have to, you know, don't waste any time on Facebook. Don't do any online shopping, no fantasy football, like head down working. We're going to work fast when we work. And if you can't figure out how to do as much as you were doing before, you're going to be fired. So I'm going to give your life back, but I'm going to put pressure on you. And this is how um, everybody that I know, all that my entrepreneurial peers are sort of thriving in today's economy is they're, they're, they have these time constraints on them. And that forces them to find uh, ways to be more productive. The identification of productivity and widely available that nobody is using. And this is how entrepreneurs today are able to basically accomplish, you know, 10 times, 20 times the amount of work that, you know, your standard you know, corporate citizen in America is able to do um, because they just throw uh, people and basically hours at, at things. And so we constrained that. And we did that for about two years. We did an experiment and I ended up writing a book on it called The Five Hour Workday, which you can check out that book. It's It's got press in over 20 countries. And it's it's really a, a you know, a counterintuitive thinking here. Uh, but the idea of, you know, stressing people for time makes them work faster and identify ways and they can become basically more productive people by doing that. We've kind of tweaked the experiment uh, a bit um, as we've had a downturn in the sub business to where now we do the five hour workday four months of the year from June 1st until September 30th is the time of the year. So we'll do 70% of our revenues in those four months and that's what we see people for time. And um, so that's what we're doing now. And then the rest of the year, we're, we're doing startup hours. And we had to make that tweak because we actually started to lose people because we lost her a bit, you know, before it was, you know, these working in the trenches, startup hours, you form very close bonds with people. And we sort of, we lost some of that. So we, we, we now try to do a hybrid model where we've got the startup uh, hours in the off season and the five hour workday uh, in the summer. And that, that I think is a you know, success tool that any company can use is, uh, just give your employees like summer hours and just say, okay, we're going to condense this. Can't figure out how to work as fast as you've done as you did before. You're going to be fired. Get rid of those people. Where can our cons- listeners grab your paddle boards, your book, and some of the other products that you're selling? Sure. Yeah. So if you're looking for our paddle boards, just go to towerpaddleboards.com or you can, you know, Google it near the top there. Towerelectricbikes.com. And then, um, the other business, which I really didn't talk about, is uh, nomiddleman.com. And um, this is a, this is an interesting business for, uh, it sounds like you guys have entrepreneurs in your audience. I speak at Harvard a couple times a year. And the biggest thing that these kids from Harvard Business School is they're starting direct-to-consumer brands. And so what I've done with nomiddleman.com is we've aggregated all of the best direct-to-consumer brands in the world onto one, one website. And so it's kind of an everything showroom to consumer brands. You can go on there. There's maybe three or 4,000 categories and you can say, okay, I want to find all the direct to consumer brands that offer uh, mattresses or uh, electric bikes or surfboards or sunglasses. And it will show you, um, you know, it's, it's very highly curated. So just maybe the top three to five brands that offer products as direct to consumer only brands in each of those product categories. And, you know, the significance of that is that these direct to consumer brands offer the best value proposition in the world on product. Most of these companies are not even selling through Amazon and they're certainly not selling in retail stores and they're just able to pass that value on to consumers. And what's in the online world is there used to be kind of, you know, direct to consumer companies. And then Amazon basically took over half of all, you know, retail commerce in the U.S. And then Google got such a dominant position that you basically have to advertise within Google to sell stuff anymore. So what we've done is we went, went from retail. Retail was destroyed. We went to this online shopping and then you've got two 
create monopolistic partners in Amazon and Google that basically are now taking, I would estimate, 30 to 50 percent transaction fee of every online transaction. And so we're basically back to retail and we're just paying the retail margin to either Amazon or Google, you know, the new trillion dollar companies. And there's going to be a reaction to this because consumers are not getting, um, you know, the value passed to them that the the connectivity and the communication of the Internet uh, was designed for or affords them. And so this is what uh, No Middleman, it, the design of it is, is we're aggregating all of these independent brands, putting them together, and making them very easy to search, kind of like people started doing product search on Amazon just because everything was on there, right? So we're going to try and create a showroom like that where everything is on there. You just go on there. We're going to curate it for you. We're not going to give you, you know, 500 paddle boards to choose from. We're going to say, here's the three to five best companies go on there. So it's great for consumers. And then for these direct consumer brands, it's just free leads. So we're not intermingling ourselves in the transaction. That's why the, the name is no middleman.com. But the reason I bring that up for entrepreneurs is there's, I mean, thousands and thousands of just basically completely vacant categories uh, for direct to consumer brands that nobody has, uh, you know, just created a little business going after that. And as this, uh, this direct to consumer movement builds, there's going to be direct to consumer for everything. And so that is really where a lot of opportunities are. What I was talking about before, sort of this express demand, people are becoming aware of this. You know, they buy a mattress direct to consumer, then they buy, you know, razors direct to consumer. They're like, how am I able to get this stuff so cheap? It's like better quality and, you know, the price is much better. And so they're, they're, they're cluing in that, you know, Amazon is a convenience store today. Uh, retail is dead, but these direct consumers have this incredible uh, value. So then they say, well, hey, I want a direct consumer uh, suntan lotion. Where do I find that? And so this is, you know, the opportunity in front of a lot of entrepreneurs today. And I would say there's, there's tens of thousands of little companies uh, to start. All right, Stefan, we'll let you get back to your day. It's been an honor and a privilege having you on the podcast. Awesome. Hey, thanks for the opportunity, Zach. These episodes will be launched on Mondays and Thursdays. And if you'd like someone to be on the podcast, if you think there's someone in your network that should be recognized for the good they are doing in the world, please reach out to us and send us a direct message. We can be found at reachingworldpodcast on facebook.com. So be sure to find us there, like our page, and submit any ideas or suggestions of individuals or organizations that should be highlighted on this podcast.